0: Hey, and welcome back to Woodward Tigers. I am your host, Chris Brown, here. Alongside me, as always, is Rahelio Castillo, and uh, we are pleased to be joined tonight by uh, MLB.com writer and researcher, Ballpark Dimensions podcast host, and, and general StatCast evangelist, Mike Petriello. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
1: Hey, thanks, guys. I like evangelist. That's uh, it's a nice intro there.
0: Yeah. Well, it <laughs> seems like, yeah, you're spreading the word, right? I do, yeah. <laughs> I see, see you've got a New Jersey Devils hat there. They, they really put it on the Red, uh, red Wings last night, but we we'll discussed that later. I
1: wasn't going to bring it up, but yes, they did. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, so we, we, like like we said, we really appreciate you coming on with us tonight, And uh, but we always start our, our interviews with just a general feel for, for your earliest baseball memory, and I think you're about the same age as both of us, so this should be interesting to us.
1: So I have a good one. It's It's cheating a little bit. My earliest memory I'm going to talk about is the first baseball game I attended. I don't remember the game itself that well, but I do remember like leaving the house with my dad and my grandpa and my cousin. But the reason I highlight this is because I think you guys will appreciate that it was actually a Tigers game. It was, and my mom sent me the ticket stop a couple years ago. So I was able to look up the date and look up the box score. So This is 1985. This is like peak, really good Tigers, right? This is like Gibson and right field and Lew and Tram up the middle. And I'm glad you guys made me think about this. Cause when I was looking up the box score today, I didn't realize this had happened, and this wouldn't have been funny in 1985, but it's very funny to me right now. So Jack Morris starts the game. He gives up eight runs and gets the W, which is, like, <laughs> perfect. It so good.
2: All-time winningest picture of the 80s. There we go. That's why. Games like that.
0: I, think I probably went to my first game around the same time. But I, I don't remember. There are pictures of me going there, but I don't remember the game at all. But it was at, at Tiger Stadium. Like, one of the first games I do remember was a game, I think it was like my ninth or tenth birthday, against the Yankees. I think it was tenth, because it was like Kevin Moss was there. That's wow. about all. Kevin Moss and Bill Kyler. That's what I remember about that game.
1: So. I saw two of Kevin Moss's first four home runs in 1991. I remember that.
0: Yeah, there were going to be about 700 more. It just didn't quite work out there for him.
1: <laughs> I, just remember,
2: I just remember that late 80s period where the Yankees and Tigers had kind of, dad Matt Noakes, and then they had, I'm trying to think of the pitchers, there was, I'm trying to think of, there was a, a, left, a lefty, Paul Gibson, there was, they had another guy, I think Chuck Carey maybe, I'm, I can't remember. That's exactly but, who I was
1: going to say. But, yeah, Chuck Carey, Chuck <laughs> Harry
2: and some of those like obscure pitchers, they're always yeah. exchanging because Sparky Anderson always loves veterans, mm-hmm. and for some strange reason, he was also obsessed with Toronto Blue Jick pitchers, and so I think of John Cerruti, or Stephen yeah. Wells, but also the same time with like just players like Lloyd, Mo- Lloyd Moisby at his point where he wasn't past his prime anymore, so I just, I was cracking yeah. up about that.
1: Lee Getterman, was he ever a Tiger? <laughs> that's I a don't movie. No, I don't
2: think so, There was, but I, I was trying to think about, like, was it Chuck? Is it, uh, there's another former Yankee-Tiger connection there, and I'm, I'm just drawing a, well, outside Marcus Timms, of course, but I was trying to think of something, maybe in the late, early 90s, but I'm drawing a blank right now, but, so thanks for joining us, and we, there's a lot of things with the, the Tigers in the offseason right now that's been It's very quiet. Of course, they need a third base when they're the first base. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, in terms of projected war, you see their first base right now is 1.9, and third base is 2.3, which kind of surprised me a little bit only because the seemed like a platoon situation. But with the the shift being gone and Jonathan Scope now potentially might be playing third, where do you see the the Tigers in terms of teams? I know they're not going to contend this year but it just seems like what's in other words i really don't know what they're going to have at first base or third base when spencer Turpleson still hasn't been able to be proven to be a a steady first baseman yet
1: well i I agree with you there i just don't think they have any choice other than to let him try like you look at the situation they're in i don't i don't i I think we kind of look at young guys who come up especially highly touted guys and we We get a little spoiled by Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna and these guys who just destroy from day one. Like the level of young talent we have in the sport is unbelievable. But then we kind of forget, like Mike Trout wasn't very good his first couple months in the majors. There's a ton of guys who have needed some time. I don't know if Torvaldickson's going to be a good player or not. But I do know at the situation that the Tigers are in, like you literally have no choice. You have to let him play. And I think they're in kind of a, a an extra weird spot in the sense that they do have a new general manager, right? Scott Harris has come in. So usually when that happens, it's because the franchise hasn't been playing well, which is definitely true. And you get a little bit of a grace period. Now, I don't think anybody expected him to do almost literally nothing to <laughs> the offense, which is kind of what's happened. But I don't have a problem with him sticking with Torque at first base. I think I heard AJ Hinch on the radio not long ago saying he expected Miguel Cabrera to play a little bit at first base this year as well. So like that's fine and as far as like third base goes I'm kind of surprised they haven't signed brian anderson yet just because he's a placeholder he can play the outfield if it turns out one of the internal third basemen are good i i kind of like timer kind i was a little surprised they let him go to be honest but we are in this weird spot where it's like you had some amount of potential helium last year that didn't go well so you can't like blow it up obviously but i also understand why he's not out there giving like 12 year contracts to try to get guys to come here
0: yeah, yeah, they really are in a strange situation. We we get a lot of people commenting like, "Wait, who's going to play third base? Where? Why aren't they doing anything?" And I'm like, "Man, I don't really know. Like, I we wonder if they are, if the owner is is pinching pennies again. We wonder if Scott Harris really thinks that it's more important for the organization for long term health to to find out if they have anything in these kind of fringe prospects they could have play at third base, like Ryan Kreidler, Andre Lipsius, guys like that. But yeah, it, it really is. It's it's been a strange time here in Tigers land where they. Had the worst offense in baseball last year by, I think, a pretty decent margin, <laughs> and they've added no bats. They've added a couple pitchers, kind of like, hey, one year, interesting pitcher deals. But yeah, it, it's it's tough times in Tigers land. I'm, I'm trying to think of a more boring team on the national
1: level. Oakland, maybe, because at least I can name a bunch of Tigers. Washington, yeah. I guess, is in there. I, I do think the offense will be better, just in the sense of, you look at some of the guys, right? Like, Torkelson has to be, like he, he has to be. I think you saw some signs of life from Javi Baez late in the year. Like He has to be better than he was. Riley Green, healthy second year. I, I think you're going to see some of these guys step up. Austin Meadows is probably a great example. Like, I cannot think of a more disastrous season than he had for all those reasons. It's not going to be a good offense. Like Even if all of those guys I mentioned play well, it's still a bad offense. But I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say things went so poorly last year that at least a couple of these guys, whether youth injuries, whatever, will we'll bounce back a little bit.
2: And that was even the strange thing about looking at the StatCast data was just the amount of offense from 2021 with the same exact lineup, the 2022, where it was, I mean, we ta- there was just looking at the, we talked about this numerous times. It still, to me, is like a mystery. And there's people out there saying, well, what, what, what about the dead ball and, and making excuses and all that? I To me, like out of all the things I've seen on StatCast that are just plain and simple and Easy to understand that the offensive, the offensive decline last year. Is that, is that, is that a normal thing? I mean, in in your time researching, is that just like one year, just in a booth like that?
1: No, not usually. I mean, if you look at everybody individually, I feel like you can come up with individual reasons for all this, right? Like Baez is incredibly talented, but he's the opposite of consistent. Like it's not that shocking to see him disappear for a couple months. And then you expect he'll be phenomenal for a couple months. Green was injured, right? We know that. Torkelson like I said it's not that uncommon for a young guy to to struggle to adjust and then as we said Meadows has just had a disastrous year all along and Miguel Cabrera is clearly at the end of the line so while it was underperforming I, to me it underperformed being lousy like I, I thought it would be kind of lousy and then it turned out it was disastrous for a bunch of reasons but I, I never saw this as like oh this is a great lineup unless Torkelson was like a monster right away unless Green was the opening day center fielder which we know he got hurt there, it was worse than you thought but I don't think it was ever going to
0: be. Yeah, I think I've been joking with, with Raj about, I kind of compared it to the, the Springfield Power Plant softball team. It was like nine I misfortunes last year. I was like, yeah. I <laughs> disappears with domestic issues. Another guy has like Parker, Austin Meadows had like three different injuries and then had depression. It was like, man, that just, everything that could go wrong went, went wrong last year. And we joked about it even before the season. We thought that like, this was a more talented Tigers team than the year before on paper. But things could still go wrong because it's baseball, and then yes, every single thing went wrong, so uh, it wasn't fun.
1: No, and, and and not just the lineup too, right? Like Casey Myers yeah. got hurt. Like yeah. everything went. Joubel yeah. got <laughs> hurt. Right. They, they went through
0: I think fifteen, sixteen starting pitchers. Um, yeah, the, the sixteen starting pitchers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's not ideal, but uh, but we'll move on. We're moving on. It's the new year, and and you've been a lot of people have been speculating about what the shift changes might mean, and, and I think there's a general feeling among fans mm-hmm. that it's going to be more impactful than it probably is. And you've been doing a series of articles about that. So I'm curious if you want to lay out some of the findings you've you've got from that.
1: Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work on it. And the whole thing, it's fascinating. Like I have long been against the idea of a shift ban. Like, I still kind of am against the idea of it. But the more I have thought about it, the more interested I am just to see what happens. And it's not necessarily whether it's going to affect guys as much as people think it will. I'm mostly interested to see how different hitters approach it. Because what I've really learned by looking into this Every left-handed hitter is not the same hitter. They're not going to get impacted the same way. And I fully expect there's going to be some guys who will say, I don't care. I I'm going to hit the ball as hard as I can. I don't care where you put your outfielders. Like Jock Peterson is probably a good example of that. And then there are going to be guys who are like, oh, great. There's not three guys that were there. I I can get my singles back. And they're going to go for that. Not everybody's going to have the same value proposition. Like if you're if you're Anthony Rizzo and you're playing in Yankee Stadium. Why would you want that single back? You're like, no, I kind of want to hit the short porch over there. <laughs> that's right. that's what I'm doing. But to, to kind of give you like a high level explanation of, of how I tried to do this with the numbers with Saccast, we know how hard the ball was hit the the angle lunch angle and also the horizontal angle. So you look at the likelihood of all those combinations being a hit and you look at it based on where. The fielders were allowed to play last year, and you compare it to where the fielders could play this year, and you kind of take the difference between those two things. So when I did it, the first three guys who potentially would have regained the most hits made a ton of sense, right? Corey Seager, Kyle Schwarber, and Carlos Santana—great, like wonderful, no problems there. And then I went through it, and it's like, hey, weird. Like Anthony Rizzo is not on this list. Matt Matt is not on this list. So I had to go explain why, and it's just reasons about like how they hit the ball and where they hit the ball and all that kind of stuff but I think the flaw in any evaluation of what the shift might do including my own is that you can't just take what happened in 2022 as far as the batted balls and expect it will be the same next year and that's partially just because you know batted ball distribution is noisy but it's also because guys won't act this like Jeff McNeil is not going to act the same he's the kind of bat control guy who can do that Freddie Freeman right some guys will act the same it, it's just going to be so noisy. And I think you'll be able to see the impact at a league level. Like, you'll probably be able to say, okay, left handers as an aggregate got back batting average on ground balls. Like, I think that'll happen. But it's going to be really hard to do it on a batter to batter basis. Because imagine if, like, Max Kepler gets traded to Houston or something and gets 30 points of batting average. Is that going to be because of the shift? Or is it going to be because the short porch there? Or because the Astros hitting coaches are telling him something different? Like, it's so complicated to dig into this.
0: Yeah, just from, from my, just I, I didn't dig into the research at all, really, but I just, just thinking of, of hitters who would, there's a kind of a small subset of, of those left-handed hitters who hit a lot of line drives to short right field. In, my, in, in, in Tiger's history, to me, it's like V-Mart and Alex Avila. Just pepper that your short right field. And, uh, and that, I think those hits would likely be gone or, or likely return. But I don't know. It, it, it depends on how pitchers pitch to them. It depends on how teams decide to field their defense now.
1: Yeah I think that's true so I think there's two things there one is that people hear the the idea of a shift ban and I think a lot of people take that to mean that the four infielders will just play at the traditional four infield starting spots which isn't really true there's still flexibility for a lefty batter you can still have your shortstop right up the middle as long as he's on the one side of second base the other thing too and I this occurred to me as I watched like a ton of video about this people will will see a ball that's hit into the shift or let's say a ball that's hit to a rover in short right field and they'll say oh that's that's an out caused by the shift and it's like well wait a minute that ball went directly through where a regular second baseman would be standing anyway might actually be easier because he's got more time to throw the guy out so that's the big thing to me is a ball that was an out with the shift on is not a ball that was caused by the shift to be an out which sounds like semantics but i think is actually really important
2: as far as even for like a player and it's something like a, a light hitting well i'm trying to think of like a Maybe a guy in the minor leagues that I wonder how the triple effect will go down to the to the minor leagues because if they're going like I know there's a like for example in the Pacific Coast League there's certain ballparks that have various ballpark factors the air in Vegas as an example something like that but I'm just curious for a, a, somebody like who was a, a fringe prospect where they a couple of hits will either make or break them I'm just kind of curious. If there's anything like that right now, where there's like a 4A player on a team right now, Tigers might like, I think of like Willie Castro or think of Harold Castro as well, because that's kind of where they were. But guys like that, those, I'm just wondering how that would be influenced. The lack of shift would influence that.
1: That's a really, it's a good point. I think this kind of goes back to the difference between how fans value players and how teams value players, because I think the fans look at this and they go, this is great. Anthony Rizzo or whoever will get, Twenty points back in his batting average, but if he's sacrificing some of his power to do that, he might be a less valuable hitter overall. And so some of the fans be like, "Well, he got a better batting average," and the teams would be like, "Yeah, but his OPS plus dropped because because he, he turned power into singles." So I, I think that's going to be a big difference just between like which group of people is evaluating these players. And I think it's interesting to look at some of the guys in the minors. I just I would be surprised if there are guys who because of that were able to get to the big leagues. If teams weren't able to see that they have other skills or if it's like really because of the batting average, I just don't feel like teams operate that way anymore.
0: Yeah. And and for whatever reason, the shift shift change is the biggest rule people seem to be talking about, but it's not the only rule change coming into the season. And, and really I also run the Tigers minor league report site where we, we went to a ton of minor league games last year and they had all these rule changes in effect. And I don't remember noticing a change in play at all. Really? I mean, maybe, just a bastard me just fast yeah right? yeah maybe some more aggressive base running maybe so I, i'm curious if you think there's something that's that's coming to the big leagues that's actually going to have a big impact
1: oh the pitch clock no oh, i'm so excited about the yeah. pitch clock <laughs> i live i live in brooklyn not that far away from where the mets single a team in coney island is which oh, i know not a lot fun. of your listeners probably are in coney island but if you ever have the chance like absolutely go it's built into the boardwalk it's like a phenomenal experience <laughs> it's so good there's like the roller coasters that the cyclone is the famous roller coaster right beyond left field it's phenomenal highly recommend but anyway that was my first experience of seeing the pitch clock last year and it's funny like we went to a bunch of games but the one that stands out is near the end of the school year so my son was in first grade and they did a trip there to go see a game they had like a a camp day at school or whatever and i helped to chaperone it and we got there and the game's at noon and like yeah we still have to be back for school letting out at 2 30 i'm like wait a minute we're gonna be here for like an inning because we gotta ride the bus back i'm like this is what are we doing here and because of the pitch clock, we got through like three and a half innings and it was great. The guy got the ball, he threw the ball and every time someone says, oh, you must, you must hate baseball, you want to see less baseball. It's like, no, I want to see more baseball, I just want to see it in less time. Like, guys standing around is not watching baseball. Like, action happening is baseball. I think that's going to blow people's minds how effective this is. Yeah, especially because, I mean, how many times last year, Chris, when we
2: went to West Michigan or Lansing. I mean, the year he wasn't, well, I mean there's one game in the year we saw that it was like that, but it was just, I remember, because I live two hours away from West Michigan and Chris lives a little closer, but it would be, I would get home 2.30, 2 2.00 o'clock in the morning, driving back from his house, and, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, coming home at 11.30 midnight because the game was over by 8.00, sometimes 8.45 or 9.00. It, it was insane. It was just a, it was a great experience. And, and at the pitch clock, I definitely think it's going to be, especially, I, I think for the major league hitters too, I, I think that's going to, Improve their social life a little bit, Chris. Because oh well, I was remember
0: the example we always provide. and I was trying to find remember the exact details because we went out to Erie for uh, Erie's like a five hour drive from us, and so we went out there for a weekend series. And we saw the first game, Carrie Carpenter hit two home runs and two doubles in one game. We're like, hey, all right, this might work. But the next game, it was eight to five. There were three mid inning pitching changes. We had fourteen hits, and the game finished in two hours and five minutes.
1: That's amazing. That's right. Yeah,
0: that's, that's right. fantastic. The only the only complaints I've actually heard from people are like people who who want to like get drunk I and mean, like I can't get, get drunk that fast yeah it was like well get drunk in your own time I guess
1: yeah you can do it I believe in you that's, that's true that. just to,
0: I guess take more shots
1: or pre- um, pre-game I guess I don't know
0: but so one of the things obviously you're you're I, I called you the baseball or, or Statcast cast evangelist our portal to that is always baseball savant which I play around with all the time and we, we have during the regular season we do a, a whole segment inside the numbers and we usually just are pulling numbers from savant that are interesting but I'm curious because there's so much on there, but I always find myself wanting more. And I'm sure other people are too. Like, I, is there one thing that people ask you a lot of the times, like, hey, I wish we had this?
1: Well, I mean, people are always asking for a catch probability numbers on every play. And why don't we put that out there? And to be honest, it's just because that doesn't match the eye test a lot of the times. Like, it's a hard number without context because people will see a diving catch and they'll think, wow, this is a great catch. And it's like, yeah, but what you didn't see was the terrible route he took there that made it like much more difficult. So, that That's one thing we don't put out. I mean, we, we do have a lot of things in the works. We're going to make access to this minor league stats a little more accessible okay. next year. I can, I can see you guys going like, yes, I have like a, a three-step plan of this I want to do. I think I think the first step is just going to be like, here are the scoreboards for the games. Make it easier. And then like down the line, leaderboards, search, whatever. Um, There's a new metric we're working on that I'm like, fingers crossed, I'm hoping we're going to get done before opening day, which I think will be really cool is if you think about like the entirety of catchers, you look at caught stealing percentage, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like, oh, is, is he good at preventing stolen bases? And for the entirety of baseball history, they'll be like, yeah, but he, you steal on the pitcher. You don't, you don't steal on the catcher, right? Well, we, we have all that information. We know if the runners if he got a good lead. We know what the pitcher's time to the plate was. So what we're going to do is we're going to take all that and we're going to say what positions were the catchers put into, right? Like if I allow a stolen base, but it was Albert Pujols running and you allow a stolen base, but it was Byron Buxton with a great jump, that is not the same, right? So sure. I think that's going to be cool. We'll be able to say like, which catchers are actually really good at throwing out runners and why? Is it because they have a great pop time or is it because they're accurate to the the, the base? I think that's going to be pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you could, you could assign equal or, or different blame. there. You could say, well, this is 90% on the <laughs> pitcher and 10% on the catcher.
1: That's exactly right, yeah.
0: that's That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always kind of wanted, like, bat speed. I, I assume that would be kind of difficult. I Any large thing like that would be kind of difficult, I would think. But but with Hawkeye, you measured everything, right?
1: Well, that that was a sort of a, a test program last year. I wrote about it a little bit. So they, they activated it just in Houston and Dodger Stadium and only for a couple of months. So it was just That's enough surprised. to
0: look at. I remember that. Yeah. That was a great article, yes.
1: Yeah, I, and it was cool, right? And I, to be honest, all I wanted to know was, like, does this tell me anything? And I looked at it very, like, high level little context leaderboard and it was like oh yes julio rodriguez is at the top I think and like, not yeah, I yeah and i forget yeah. who's at the bottom it was like jacob stallings or i don't know somebody like that and it's like okay cool this is telling me something and then that is expanding to all 30 parks this year and it's the kind of thing where it's like i don't think it's going to be turned on publicly on opening day because you want to make sure it works you want to make sure you have a way to appropriately put it into context like i think if you go back to day one of stack s in 2015 that a lot of that was probably pushed out too quickly before enough data quality was work and context was added. So there, there is a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline, but it's not all going to be on opening day. I'm sure.
0: Yeah. I, I uh, what was the other one? They, Oh, I'm always kind of jealous there. There will be these, these beat writers. who'll be like, Oh, Carlos Correa threw that 94 miles an hour across the diamond. I'm like, how did you find that out? Where's that information? I want <laughs> to <But actually, laughs> so you added arm strength over the, the last year. And that was great. That was one of the things that, that we, that made it into our inside the numbers a couple of times. It, I just never know if that's like, hey, there's just too much of that. The public, the public can't handle it. Or if it's like, yeah, teams don't want it out.
1: Well, there is some of it that teams don't want out for sure. They they like, I'm, I'm happy with as much as they have allowed us to put out because it could have easily been nothing. (laughs) Like it could have been nothing. And it's funny too, because we're all kind of in our baseball bubble, but as, as other sports have started to catch up with this kind of similar information, I definitely hear from people in other sports going like wow the NFL gives me nothing I can't believe how much baseball that's out there which is cool but yeah there, there are some things that teams kind of want to keep to themselves because I think they might feel at least some of them that they have an advantage over other teams it's probably not hard to guess which teams feel they have an advantage of which other teams but yeah a lot of it's allowed to be public some of it we just haven't gotten to yet the, the arm strength thing is interesting so not to get like two in the weeds here but for the first couple of years of StatCast, it was powered by Trackman. And mm-hmm. since 2020, it's been powered by Hawkeye, like the tennis people. And Trackman was really, really good at a lot of things, but one thing it was not very good at was tracking infielders' throws. Like that's why the leaderboards don't even go back beyond 2020, because it just it missed so many infielder throws it wasn't even worth it to put up any information. And I think some of it is just inertia. It's like, okay, well, those throws were never publicly available. Then I guess we should actually go make the active decision to put them available. So I'm not saying it won't ever be, it's just, that's kind of why it's not.
0: I get it. Yeah. And, then, and the only, oh, I was just going to, I had one more, Rod, sorry. Oh, sure. no, that's no, okay, man. This is one that I think actually could be relatively easy to put up because it just involves, a, I think, adding a column and doing some math. But it's, it's, you see a lot of people now, especially fantasy people, talking about 90th percentile exit velocity. So Savant has max exit velocity and average exit velocity, but people seem to be all about this 90th percentile. And you, we you can do it on our own. I, I did it the other day for a couple of guys, Tyler Nevin and who was Charles LeBlanc or whoever it was that, that was left from who released by the Marlins just to see. But in the in the grand speed of Homer Simpson, can't somebody else do it?
1: <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Yeah. I, I will say average exit velocity is mostly useless. Like I haven't used it in years for a lot of reasons. I like hard hit rate. I guess I haven't compared hard hit rate to 90th percentile i think that'd be interesting i don't really know what the outcome of that would be if one's more useful than the other but worth thinking
2: i know with the nfl they use rfid technology with some of the next gen stuff and i always like seeing the speed of on the pads and even like the absorption like i think they show like the hits i wonder if is there anything with baseball duo with like rfid technology kind of having the ability to have i know it's like with the microchip technology is kind of small or the NFL is kind of easier to hide, obviously, but in baseball, I'm just kind of curious if that would be another next wave.
1: My understanding as to why the NFL and other sports have had to do that is because in baseball, the players stay separate a lot. Like it's not in football, you've got a mass of guys right on top of each other. The cameras would have a really hard time telling apart number 85 from number 12 or whatever. In baseball, that's much easier because you don't have guys like running into each other so i think that's it my guess is that the players union would probably not love the idea of wearables at least at this time too and certainly they have to approve that as clearly as they're right so i i do not have like knowledge of all of the inner workings like i'm sitting in my basement in brooklyn right now but as far as i understand i don't think that's something that's being considered all right so we're moving away from baseball going to our specific
2: wheelhouses because one of the things that chris and i but we we love anytime we have an opportunity not to talk baseball and we and for people with like-minded and i understand
1: that are you still playing the band with a bunch of there's a couple of writers you're playing the band with right you're still doing that uh we're trying to but michael claire who is a friend and colleague keeps getting sent on international baseball trips like he's going to the czech republic next week and i forget where else after that because he's he's all about the world baseball classic which is like super cool for him, but very tough to run a band when one of your co front men is never.
2: There was a of the kids in the hall skit where the, was it Scott or it Scott and I forgot the name of the band, but every time they would rename the band constantly because they were trying to get rid of the lead singer and they couldn't get together to practice and Her,
1: Herb, Herb, Herb. Mendelchuk. Yeah. Like...
2: yeah, God, was was, yeah. Just... His dad comes in he's just like, <laughs> where we've been talking. And, but it's, Anytime we get to talk music and albums, it's fantastic. And Chris, Chris, by the way, fun fact about Chris: he used to go to underground hip hop shows in the late nineties. And don't act it's, like it's don't act well, like I that's not so that Really cool.
0: fun fact. I, okay, what the fuck? I, you don't have to know that. I, I went to underground punk shows and stuff. I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was fun. There was a scene, but there are lots of different scenes.
2: So, but at any rate, I just. What band, what was like in terms of, and you li- living in Brooklyn, I'm sure you have, I think of the Sneaker Pimps, I think of Beastie Boys, I think of, I think of a lot of, I think of, of course, uh, the Strokes are from New York and forgive me for not knowing more about that kind of scene. I I, there was, uh, I read Please Kill Me, which has all the references to CBGBs and everything like that in the city, but what, what, what band, what was a like one of the, in 1996 especially or in your wheelhouse in high school what are those bands that just stood out to you that you were just on
1: quickly yeah well well, my first concert growing up in new jersey was green day so pretty much everything that sounds like that like i loved bad religion no effects all that kind of stuff and it's so hard to categorize rock bands like oh this is a rock band this is a power pop band or whatever but pretty much every like cool 1990s rock band or punk rock band i loved some of them were one hit wonders that i ended up loving all their other stuff more like super drag i love super drag and everybody knows one of their songs the president's the united states is a great example of this nobody's ever heard of the mr t experience i don't think but they're like one of my all-time favorite bands like the bay area pop pop punk basically so that's that's kind of where i come from is that like mid to late 90s punk rock and power pop and i guess i shouldn't be embarrassed to admit how much i loved ska but i definitely did love ska like as a as a Sort of mediocre bass player listening to all the bass players at ska bands was always a big influence for me.
2: Yeah, especially the the passing away of the Specials singer just uh, what was it, last week. Yeah, uh, I so, yeah, I think so. Ago. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Was kind of it, it took me until it didn't. It dawned on me told like a years ago that he was in the Sunday Morning video. No doubt, I had no it. I couldn't. I was like, who is this random guy? And then and then it just like, just hit me like, oh, of course it's him. But there's there there's a period of time too from '96 to '99 where you have bands like counting crows and and pop and like the kind of pop rock stuff that took over and then 1999 the rap rock thing took over the The boys band new metal boy band, new metal and bands like in, in uh, you talk about like one hit wonders kind of thing Do- dovetail joint which is a band that's kind of obscurity and then you think of another band that i was really starting to get into a little bit toward like Sebado, stuff like that stuff that you find on it was random like real stations used to play this stuff and then as the decade goes on it's how hard is it for you to find music now in this in digital age? Because I mean, Spotify recommends some stuff and they they're usually put pred- it on, but in terms of just your friends, do you guys exchange albums, mixtapes, those things like that? To me, I still do that because I feel like that's something that some of the music ba- bands like the Bronx, for example, out of LA, they're a band that I think should get more due and they should, I'm surprised or not. But every time I mention the Bronx, people are like, I never heard of them and or their their mariachi compared l bronx and so it's uh, i don't know it's just to me that's just the way it just seems like music like that the, the finding that punk music is getting harder and harder to do
1: yeah it's interesting you say that i definitely had a good like six or seven year period where I, I did not discover any new music at all and i think part of that's just life stuff you know get married you have two kids like obviously there's only so much time in the world and over the last couple of years it's changed. Like I've I've sort of made it a, a point to try to discover new bands and not just listen to like my favorite band's ninth record that just came out. You know what I mean? Spotify's done really well for me on that. Like the algorithm seems to know me pretty well. Some of it's through friends like in the band Mike Claire and Davey Andrews and, and Dan Epstein. Like we all pass around similar tastes in music. But yeah, the the bands I've discovered in the last couple of years, a lot of it is because Spotify has played it for me. And I listen to one song and I'm like, wow, this is really good. And then I go listen to the rest of it and I'm like, oh, this is really good. And I guess that's a very 21st century way to do it. Like, I'm sure in high school, my girlfriend made me a mixed burned CD or whatever you would do at the time. Because, <laughs> like you said, I think we are all of similar ages. So that was the thing you did in 1999. The little CDR. Uh, but yeah. The last couple of years, like, I've really enjoyed finding new music and not thinking too much about how much older that I am than the people making the new music. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and that's the way I kind of look at it too because there's just sometimes where there's a band in a period of time where I was busy with life and, oh, this is really good. It sounds really good. They're really new. Oh, wait, this came out in 2011 and the band's no longer around anymore, but that's how, if it wasn't for Spotify, I don't know. But what are you say, Chris? Yeah,
0: oh, I just, yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that there yeah. are times where, Like if we like a type of music and it might be outdated or whatever, there's other people like us and and there are people who are younger than us who are influenced by that or find it and like it and start making music kind of like that. So there's always, I think there's always a way to find more. You just have to dig for it a little bit more. And and like you said, there's a lot of obscure stuff from when we were growing up that we never would have heard that you can find now.
1: Yeah, what what what's nice now too is depending on the kind of band you like, especially if there's younger people in the bands, and you can find those people on social media and then they will share music that they like. Like they'll be like, "Oh, here are my 100 favorite songs of the year." And it's like, "Wow, I love your band." So, if you like this, I should at least check it out and I'll probably find something I dig out of.
0: That's funny. I I as raj said, I was kind of focused on hip-hop in the late 90s, but I did kind of cross paths a couple of times. I had a little brother who was uh, way into punk music, or at the time he was like 12, so he was into like Less Than Jake. Yes. Um, and because so I, so, I, he like mustard plug, he like mustard plug too, didn't he? Hey, maybe I don't know. I took him i took him to the warp tour one year. Uh, oh, now we're so talking. I remember seeing like yellow card in thrice. Oh, and, and who was me first in the gimme gimmies? <laughs> Absolutely. Like I'm like, who are all these people? It's the whole world I don't understand, but it was fun. It was like, I was like, yeah, this is cool. This is good for you.
1: Yeah, no, ni- 19 year old me being a sophomore or whatever in college in Boston, you could find me on Lansdowne Street, which is like the left field behind right behind left field of Fenway because like baseball but that's also where all the cool rock clubs were so i would always be on one side of the street or the other nice yeah
2: so there's bands like uh, Muddy Boys Boston's out of Boston there was Morphine, morphine.
0: From there? what is morphine from Boston
1: yes i think know. that's right yeah Nice pull. Chris I was, I was I was say, my, my wife yeah Pixies obviously you want to go old school. Right. Oh, there you go yeah uh, except the, by Kevin Goldstein Oh, God. God. I'm sorry that's no, about
2: that we oh, were talking about the pixies yeah we have a we had an interesting conversation with kevin goldstein about music and it was it was inter- like we were trying to get him to he was going very obscure like, like i like japanese what was the japanese something music he liked and we're just like i don't know i got
0: nothing he gave us his
1: top five and it was it was good they had
0: like, like Wu Tang, and he had public enemy and then there was like three
2: things i'd never heard of
1: i actually know that there is a japanese band that he and i both adore called poly six if that's one he that's... talks about but yeah
2: that's wrestling who wrestling. it was it was but it was yes. that was the band that i was familiar with the other one i wasn't sure about but yeah <laughs> i ended up looking them up afterwards but it, it, the other one it was some sort of it was he was, was talking about sumo wrestling too i remember that whole part of, yeah, he's wearing the, sumo, yeah. yeah it was awesome yeah
1: raj i can say the band that you sent me earlier today those those two songs are really good i i dig them a lot i already forgot what the band is called so i apologize for that but thank you because it's very good Oh
2: no problem at all, man. Rolling coastal, rolling, rolling coastal fever. Yes, yes, yeah. That's I played a lot of like that on our trips to, our minor league trips. I played a lot of that, and they have a cool app now called Stats FM that you can download. And like for somebody that likes to look at stats, it's it's a great app because it'll take all your Spotify history, all of it, and give you the how many times you played a song, how many times a band comes up in terms of like the last four weeks, lifetime and who you share music with among your peers it is a stat like you literally will sit there and go wow i played that song 285
1: times and it'll tell you when the first time you played it day and date that sounds awesome my only issue with that is that i am an old grandpa and i have a carefully curated mp3 collection like a local that i is, listen to pretty much all the time so i was gonna ask you if you had
2: a zoom but uh, no but no I, I, no for me it's just i had a bunch of cds but i just can't i decided to like transformers and books instead so
0: if they're just in a closet somewhere and it's like one day these will come back you see people are selling cassettes now that's it, or at least the last couple of years that was a cool thing to do it was, it was tapes again i'm like how do you even
2: find a tape player such hipsters and, and by the way living in brooklyn by the way i got i got this is a question this is kind of an obscure question before we let you go how many hipsters are in brooklyn
1: is is brooklyn the epicenter of it people underestimate the size the physical size of brooklyn Brooklyn is absolutely enormous. So when people think of hipster Brooklyn, they're generally thinking of northern Brooklyn. So like Williamsburg, Greenpoint, like the places I used to hang out at night back when I was single or didn't have kids. I live in Park Slope now, which is basically the stroller capital of the world. Like <laughs> you come here because you have exactly 2.2 2 kids and you can't afford to live <laughs> on the Upper West Side. So if you want hipsters, I guess I would say go to Williamsburg, go to Austin or go to like Echo Park or Silver Lake out in LA those are the three places that would come to mind for me
2: I always just hear like this like maybe living in the in the Midwest that Rust Belt things like oh I just joke around about that stuff all the time so um Mike thanks so much for joining us we really appreciate you taking the time And is there anything you want to promote? You have coming up? Any articles that you want to let our listeners know about?
1: Yeah, I just read all the shift stuff, which is cool. On Monday, I'm going to go to MLB Network and we're going to do our annual top 10 shows, which is cool. Like we do the top 10 at each position. So I'm very excited to do that. I've been doing it for years. Doing it with my friend and colleague, Sarah Langs. It's always a treat to spend some time with her. And then, like I said, lots of Stackcast stuff coming out over the course of this year. So keep an eye out for that.
0: Do you have any broadcasts scheduled already or, or is that No,
1: it sort of changes every year. I last year I did a lot more work behind the scenes for ESPN for their new booth, which actually worked out okay. But yeah, always always some stuff in the mix.
2: Yeah, those are great. Awesome. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to hopefully talking again soon in the near future and yeah, in the season uh, see something else and I'm blanking. But Mike, <laughs> thanks again. We appreciate yeah, it, man. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Thank you, Joe. Mike.